0: Welcome to episode 15 of the Pokemon Goal podcast. What
1: a beautiful goal, isn't it? A beautiful goal. What a thing! Messi, Messi enganchó como
2: le gusta. El il con Oh! again, another time, the shot on of... the foot of it! Oh, what a goal! What a goal that is! What a goal
1: from David Beckham! Oh, Zinedine, oh, Zinedine, a passant...
0: Different class. Different class! I'm James Carew, co-editor of Progmogol. You're listening to the 15th edition of the podcast, coinciding with issue 6 of our magazine, Ireland's only football publication. Each episode features Irish and international contributors to both the magazine and website as we explore football culture. Toggle back wherever you get your podcast for previous episodes and you can still pick up your copy of the magazine in Easton's and Tuttle's outlets around the country or online via progmagool.com. After the events of the opening weekend of Euro 2020, we join all those sending best wishes to Denmark's Christian Eriksson and the wider Danish football community. On today's special episode, we're doing something a little different in order to pay homage to the European Championship now underway across the continent.
2: The Lawrenzi Trophy, the cup we're that, we're that we're signifies the champion nation of Europe. A bust it. Oh,
0: the
2: goal! What a
1: goal! And then goes Aldridge and Hughton. One 0 Inviting. Mbappe, Griezmann, Pogba! Pogba! The right
0: to claim they are the best in Europe. It's I always say I never win something for Portugal national team. I win tonight. Viva Portugal! To do so, I'm joined by regular co host Taylor Gill. Good to have you here, Taylor. Hi, mate. How are you doing? Good. I'm delighted to say we've been joined by our guest from episode two of the podcast, Ollie Woodbridge, a communications manager from London and author of our issue six article, The Three Knees of Pavel Nedved. Welcome back, Ollie.
2: Hi, James. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's great to see you again. I've asked our guest to delve into the Euros archives to revisit a story that in particular piqued his interest But before we do that, I want to ask both gentlemen their general feeling around the hype for the tournament. It feels, understandably, muted against the backdrop of the pandemic, but are you feeling Euro fever, if you pardon the expression? Taylor?
1: Kind of. I feel like two months ago I was really looking forward to this competition and felt really good about England, which is who I'm following. Uh, but the last few weeks, given those performances we had in the friendlies, and Trent dropping out, and this whole fiasco around the squad selection, uh, less fevery, but still looking forward to it.
2: And Ollie, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I am, and um, and I think Taylor's right. I echo those sentiments. Certainly in terms of England, um, I think that we are, you know, certainly amongst the top three favourites for the tournament for the first time in a while, and that's just worrying um, because we haven't. You know, despite getting to the semi-finals in the the last World Cup and doing really well, um, I think there's always going to be a question mark. Um, But the fact is, it's a home tournament for us, effectively, if we play our cards right. Um, But not just from an England perspective. I, I am quite excited. I think there's quite a few teams. I think this is quite open. There's obviously a heavy favourite in France, but I think it's quite open and there's a few dark horses out there that are going to surprise us.
0: It's probably not the tournament Michel Platini originally envisaged. We know, for example, that... Dublin lost games but I guess when the tournament gets underway and we start to see fans in the majority of stadiums that's when the hype will start
1: to build. Absolutely yeah fully agree I think seeing fans in uh, you know the recent games towards the you know back end of the season in the last few months has really kind of brought it to life again and made us realise that that was a key part of football that we were missing so very much looking forward to seeing that.
2: I believe that the stadium capacities will go up as well. So there'll be more and more fans as we get further into the tournament, um, which is certainly how tournaments do tend to start slowly anyway. But even just the mere presence of 10,000, 15,000 fans there, certainly a Wembley for England, again, uh, will be all important into sort of making it the tournament that, that hopefully we, we hope it will be.
0: And Ollie, you had tickets for the original tournament.
2: I did. I did. I did. And, I, and we held on throughout the process we were offered a refund quite early on, but we started to stick it out, hopeful, fingers crossed, and then very recently had them, uh, you know, sort of taken away from us. It, we, I had tickets to the Scott, England-Scotland game at Wembley and then the semi-final as well. So particularly gutting. Um, but yeah, i am mean, watching on TV with, uh, with everyone else.
0: I find it interesting that you bold as Englishmen, are like, you're in a great position, so many games at home, you have a great squad, but you're not that confident because in times past I think people and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this if you're Irish probably Welsh Scottish automatically you were cheering for whoever was playing against England and there's a little bit of a sea change in that this is a much more likable England squad. In times past it was always said the press hyped England up too much you were definitely going to win football was coming home you had the Golden generation and like semi finalists, min- minimal, and then it never happened. And now that you've kind of had a lifetime of you guys growing up, not really getting there, not really getting anywhere until the last World Cup, there's a bit more of a humility which perhaps makes you more appealing. I'm not saying we'll have, we'll all be out cheering for England, but I think there's that feeling of. We grow up watching the Premier League and this is a much more likeable team with less egos. And what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I suppose your first point would be, we don't care.
1: <laughs> well, f- from my perspective, I, I, I think that's exactly right that like we have consistently underachieved. Like my, my first memory of the Euros is Euro 2004, where I was, uh, I was with my dad at a neighbour's house and you know they were full up with beer and they were really up for it. And we went one nil up, and then Zidane scored two goals after the ninetieth minute. And so that kind of um, narrative has just coloured all of England's tournament history in, in my memory. And so you're right. You know this is this is what we do. <laughs> and so yeah, going into a tournament, that's just that's just. I mean, for me, maybe for somebody born, you know, in the 70s or 80s, it's slightly different. We got a little bit further when they were in their adolescence. But for me, the starting point is always, oh, no, how bad is it going to (laughs) be?
2: Okay. And how bad has it been? I mean, you telling me that, you know, Ireland are now, you know, all Irish fans in general are now perhaps warming to us. A, a, and a sort of not all,
0: not all, certainly all. not all. I'm
2: not. I know you're not speaking for absolutely everybody, but, but even that that could be in the ether. It makes me feel sad as an England fan. Like all it does, uh, you know what I mean. That only it only kind of hammers that home because of how how bad it's been. I, you know how maybe how much we're seen as kind of outsiders um, in our own minds. Certainly, but going into this tournament, you know, we really. I think England, in terms of its history, certainly in major tournaments, it's either been peaks or troughs. You're either going to semi-finals, uh, you know, in a heartbreaking fashion, getting knocked out. Or in the case of 2004, thousand and four, quarter-finals to an incredible Portugal team who goes on to be in the final. We always tend to play the guys who go on to win it. Even way back in World Cups, 86 and, and Maradona. And, and that's obviously an entirely different story. We won't get into that. But it is, um, it tends to be peaks and troughs. And that's where, it, you know, for us, it's always, when it's bad, it's just really, really bad. And, um, and but the truth of it is, we've just been to a semi-final of the World Cup, um, and and I think that that going into this team, the reason why we might be likable, and I, and I know a lot of people feeling differently about Gareth Southgate, and I, uh, but he actually did just publish a, um, a sort of an op-ed in on the Players Tribune, and he posted this sort of. You know, it was, a, it was a long piece and just basically sort of, you know, letting letting the country know his thoughts going into... And it touched on a lot of things, you know, obviously, in terms of players taking a knee and, and that aspect and the protest aspect, um, but just touched on, you know, how the England team is perceived in the media. And he said exactly what Taylor said in terms of that it has changed. And whether he was a player it was very different. And it was actually... That was a big part of going into tournaments, that the players were, you know, carrying all this baggage from all this, you know... This overwhelming scrutiny that was coming from the public through the media, when actually a lot of it was just the media. There was a, a lot of great feeling when Taylor talks about two thousand four with Rooney. My first is obviously Euro ninety six, and we hold that dear because we know how good those teams were. Like its peaks and its troughs, and it's uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's not been great, but again, very optimistic for this tournament. Right.
1: James, I wonder what you why you think that there is a kind of. Increase in goodwill towards the England team, Um, and I I have a I have a kind of theory that we have had years of underachieving, and even in twenty eighteen, I think a semi final is a great result, and it was a wonderful summer. Like we all had a really good time watching that competition, but in the back of my mind, we scored a lot of set piece goals, and we got an easy draw on you know on that side of the that side of the draw, whereas Belgium, you know, had to beat all the tough teams. And so even the semi-final that we got didn't kind of feel as worthy as, you know, it could have been. So I don't know, maybe that plays into, you know, the goodwill towards England.
0: Well, that was certainly a stick to beat England with for people who just wouldn't warm to them, was that. You didn't beat anyone of note and it was an easy draw. But from my point of view, living in the UK, that tournament... The, the buzz built round after round and the whole it's coming home thing was total tongue in cheek it, it was said in a jokey way because people didn't actually believe it but suddenly you're going through the rounds and that's what a World Cup is about you just get through the rounds and then it went to it was a Columbia the penalty shootout where it's this huge psychological thing for England famously have lost out on so many penalty shootouts and then they get through And the place goes crazy. So you couldn't help but get caught up in that hype. And I just think, I think the squad is more likeable. There was that whole thing about which, I think Rio Ferdinand has spoken of since. These cliques in the squad based on your club and players not being able to play together and that kind of thing. I think there's less egos in this squad. I think Gar Southgate is is not an ego where you've got lads like, Sven-Gorn Eriksson in the past, who you know was <laughs> arguably on the back pages as much as any player, and sometimes the front pages. So I think they're just just a bit more of a humility about the England team.
2: They're also one of the youngest teams in the uh, in the tournament, and I think that plays into it. And in terms of Gareth being a younger manager uh, and with younger players, um, who you know a lot of whom, well, if you're talking about like Mason Mount and Foden, for example. Um, who have just played in the Champions League final. Um, these brilliant, young, sort of maverick attacking players that Southgate has. Um, and I think that really speaks to the likability. And when it comes to the cliques, I think that it's, it, I think it's interesting because the team isn't built in the way that it used to be once upon a time, where there was a, a clutch of Man United players or a clutch of Liverpool players or, you know, a set that you would essentially build the team around, Arsenal players that you build the team around that, you know, there's fewer combinations of players who, who, you know, who, who play next to each other for their club, who do for their country with England now at the moment. And that's what's quite interesting. And that maybe adds to it that there's not this clique. They're all kind of coming together. And how we're perceived, I think, is generally based on how young our team is and how they all play in the Premier League for the best clubs in the world. Because the Premier League, you know, is obviously considered, you know, one of the best, you know, best leagues in the world. And do you know what? We'll take it. Because we actually, you know, we, we, we've we never had that. Scotland, you know, Ireland, all the home nations rooting against us. Obviously, we should, you know, speak about Wales. Wales are in the tournament as well, um, as are Scotland. Um, and that's what makes this, this, this tournament so intriguing this time round as well.
0: At the time we're recording, Boris Johnson sent well wishes to England and Scotland and whatever other home nations have qualified. <laughs> he forgot about Wales. <laughs> and so... Uh, Taylor touched on it, but I want to ask each of you if you've got a standout Euros memory or something that um, jumps out at you looking back at tournaments past.
2: Yeah, so I've already mentioned it before, but Euro '96 it was obviously you know a sort of a crucial tournament moment for me, pivotal moment in my life in terms of me falling in love with football uh, as it was happening on my on, on my doorstep um, here, and it was really the 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 game we had against the Netherlands. Um, And that Netherlands team in particular, which is, you know, very interesting just because of how dominant they were built around the Ajax team and how good they were as an international force throughout the 70s, 80s and then into the early 90s Um, and how big a game that was just in terms of what we've already sort of spoken about in terms of the furore around England. and, And we obviously all know how that goes and the sort of the culture that was around the game. And we went into that as underdogs and it was the best performance that England gave since the World Cup win in 1966. And, it was, uh, and we haven't had a better performance since, in, in my opinion. And, and I think it was the combination at that point of Sheringham, Shearer and Gascoigne combating. This Dutch team was one of the best teams in the world. They had just won uh, Euro, well, no, sorry, they won Euro 88. They got to the semi-finals um, of Euro 92 um, and went out to the eventual winners. Um, it, for me, it was the, it was the last goal um, to make it 4-1. Um, in this sort of astounding win not against the odds obviously we were at home but still underdogs to a team that had the likes of Cliver a young Cliver and Burkham, um, and, we, and we picked them apart and I think really it was the kind of the, the, the most fascinating part to me which I didn't remember until later or find out till later was obviously that Scotland needed uh, basically needed us to beat Netherlands to nil in order for them to qualify they would have gone out on goal difference to the Netherlands had they scored one goal effectively and at the death Uh, we let Clivert score, having been 4-0 up and comfortably cruising. That goal came out of nowhere. Most people might not remember it, um, but it was a really good goal. It was a Clive headed sort of, you know, nutmegged uh, seaman. And ended up uh, knocking Scotland out. So it was, you know, it was, it was, I just remember it being a very good day. Even at the age of seven years old, I realised how momentous that was. That was a two for one. It was, uh, it was, (laughs) it was, yeah, it was brilliant.
0: So, does that, what we just spoke about, the fact that you beat big names on the way to the semi finals, as opposed to the World Cup, is that why you say that felt the biggest performance since 1966, as opposed to. Reaching the last four of the last World Cup,
2: and when I'm saying big names, you know, it's really to kind of push home the context around how good that Netherlands team was. Like that was, you know, up there with the best teams in the world. Forget about forget about the Euros. So certainly, uh, we then faced Spain in the quarterfinals. They, they weren't the the iteration of Spain that we saw, you know, sort of 10, 15 years later. Certainly, that was a great team as well. Um, and and then to go out to Germany. When we, we, you know, could well have won that game and, and we, we sort of, we know the heartbreak that entailed and, and Gaza sliding across the line and the opportunities we had to score. Yeah, so it was, it definitely adds to value. When Taylor says earlier that our World Cup, you know, uh, on that run, it's not, it's not that it was lucky, it was just that we, and we could only face who we face uh, but it definitely has less value than you know even that one game against Holland, which then sort of you know in '96 that propelled us. And the heartbreak of of going out to Germany in the semi-finals, it was really because of the because of how great that win was against Holland. It was because of the optimism, you know, how poignant that game was, and what you realised that you had. There was a there was a, you know it was a, a forward line that was uh, built around Shearer, who at the time going into the tournament, you know, hadn't had a good qualification. People didn't, you know, he hadn't had a good goal scoring record. And there was a line of England, great England strikers who never played for England because Shearer kept them out of the team because of what started against the Netherlands. That was kind of his arrival on the international stages. A lot going on in that game. Um, but it, all of it, you know, the importance of it to me is because of how good that Dutch team was. Um, they went on to in the semi-finals of the next World Cup in France in ninety eight. Two years later, they got to the semi-finals.
0: They did need a playoff to reach Euro ninety six, which was against the Republic of Ireland in Anfield, of and that famously was the end of the Jack Charlton reign. So it was very much felt that an ageing Irish team came up against these up and coming Dutch players like Clivert, and yeah, they beat us that night in in Anfield to go to the tournament so it would have been amazing obviously for ireland to reach the tournament so close to our own shores and now that it's back so close to our own shores even in ireland we're not in the tournament <laughs> but taylor as a younger man what when you look back at those highlights of euro 96 what are your thoughts as someone kind of looking at it uh, retrospectively
1: i wish i'd been old enough to experience it and remember it you know it's um it's, it's, kind, it's kind of in the same bracket as the 1966 World Cup for me because it's just totally absent from my conscience. You know, I was five years old. I had no idea that was going on. And I, I wish I'd experienced that. And uh, every now and then we'll be in a tournament and there is nothing quite like the feeling of, like, your national team gaining momentum in a tournament. You know, as Englishmen, we felt it in 2018, Um, And there's been a few other tournaments. The first one I remember is World Cup 2002, where your national team is out the group and then suddenly putting in a decent performance in the knockout rounds. There are a few feelings like that. Uh, But yeah, Euro 96, I wish wish I could remember it, but I just can't.
2: It's actually the same for me as well. I, I tend to find that the tournament just before you were born because Taylor's a little bit younger than I am, I was obviously, you know, sort of going into that sort of first, it was my, it's my first ever memories of football. But like for me, World Cup 94 is a complete write-off. Like I really don't know, I have no... Well, mem- you
0: weren't in it. <laughs> yeah, I <don't> know that's <laughs> true. <laughs> and you weren't you in famously it. weren't in it. <laughs> but I, I find that really interesting, Taylor, because uh, the narrative nowadays is that club football, and in particular the Champions League, is the be-all and end-all, and that international football is not dying a death, but certainly down the ladder in terms of uh, importance for players, certainly. But I'm, I'm in your camp in that there is nothing like your national team progressing in a tournament, because, like, obviously, the country comes together. There isn't those rivalries where you might be sat in a pub watching a Premier League game, or indeed in the stadium, It is all about everyone shouting in the one direction. So where do you stand on that argument that club football is more important?
1: Well, I think club football, especially in in maybe the past decade, has been incredibly entertaining at times. Like European competition has been unbelievable for the club game. Like we can think of some amazing semi-finals and finals and and even quarterfinals, you know, it's it's just amazing. I look forward to the Champions League and the Europa League every season now, because it's invariably great. But there's there there is nothing like the international game, especially for an English person, because to say that you're proud to be English is a slightly silly thing to hear somebody say. You don't tend to get that if you're, you know, Irish or, you know. You're not from like a former colony. Do you know what I mean? If you, if your if your country is not like a former empire, then being proud of just being Irish or just being whatever is is fine. But because you can't really say I'm proud to be English, it's just slightly odd. It feels a bit sticky. But then when we play in a competition, because of that colonial link, well, there's a bit of that, I guess, and it's slightly it's slightly embarrassing, you know. Um, like we can be proud of Shakespeare, or you know, we can be proud of whatever. But to say that you're just be proud of being English is—it was is weird. I, I'm not sure how else to explain it. It just feel—it just doesn't feel right. But then when your national team has got momentum in a competition, you can be proud of just being born on this island. Like, that's okay. all of a sudden.
2: Definitely. I mean, speaking to the league, you know, in terms of club football versus international football, and if there's one that's more important, you know, it is still football, and it is still the best players in the world. But absolutely, the underlying difference is that you get to be patriotic. And certainly for an Englishman... You know when it, you know, it's not like we celebrate Saint George's Day or, or you know, there are these particular landmarks for us. Like, yeah, there aren't too many days where we bring. it. And you're right, it does feel sticky. Um, but I think in general, it's also for me and in my kind of learnings of the game. You know, growing up, your fondest memories are ones from international competition. I mean, you obviously you've got the club that you love but maybe not your fondest, but certainly the most memorable come from international competition because there is, you know, this, you know an entire nation. We're all together, brothers you know, and sisters in arms coming together. Um, but I think in terms of it, uh, club football, because it happens every year, um, it's, always going to be, it's always going to be right there and it's always going to hold precedent. That's how I kind of generally feel about it. And I think that's. it's kind of echoed in how the players kind of treat it a lot of the time. Now, I'm not saying they don't turn up and perform when these big tournaments happen. You know, we've seen some of the best players in the world arrive on the global stage and, and you know, do you know, do incredible things from Ronaldo's and Zidane's, you know, the, you know, the very best players to have ever played have to have international honours in order to, you know, to be given that accolade. It's part, it has to be part of their portfolio. So, but it, it, you know, there are times when I watch, you're watching friendlies and you're, and, you know, you see the schedule and especially when it interrupts, you know, the Premier League season where you're just like, oh, do we really need to do the United Nations League Group C, and, you know, you know, Clause D, all so complex but when it comes down to the bare bones of it, it's the reason why the Euros is, I think is a really attractive tournament right now was where we are in terms of coming out of this last year and a half and the pandemic. Um, but it is a chance for us all to kind of, you know, to have that patriotic feeling again and to, you know, to get behind, in our, in our case, to get behind a team that, that actually on paper is, is, incredi- you know, is it's, it's incredibly talented. But I, I think it's really about the, 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 the joy of international football for me is seeing all the other countries, and their love for the game. And the Irish, you spoke about Jack, Jack Charlton. But like this tournament, I'm looking forward to seeing Italy and, and the Orange, obviously Holland. You know, there, there's, there's loads of teams there um, that look just looking forward to seeing their fan bases, you know, at the stadiums and the colour and, and everything that goes with it.
0: Yeah. Taylor, you mentioned Euro 2004 was your first tournament that you really remember. Mm, what your are your top... What first Euros? What are your memories of it? I mean, I, I've been thinking about this before coming on, and that again, it's kind of revisionism that the Greek team is derided. But if I was Greek, I wouldn't care damn. You like you could die happy after winning an international tournament.
1: Yeah, my specific memories of that competition are obviously the emergence of Rooney. I think he scored. What did he score, four goals in the groups or something like that? He, uh, I don't think he scored against France, but he scored in the, the other two games. And this is what I was talking about, that, that feeling of momentum that your national team gets and just how euphoric that is. We got that in the last two group games. I think we beat Switzerland and uh, Croatia or something, but we scored a load of goals as well. And that feeling was just so great. Um, and we went from like the lows of losing two goals to France in the last minute to, you know, scoring seven goals in the next two games and then progressing to the knockouts. And then we're back down in those lows again because we're in the penalty shootout against Portugal, which, you know, we lost. Um, but my memories of that are so visceral because they are so extreme. You know, it was a competition that I watched with my dad, the first one I remember. So, yeah, brought to life for me the, the, um, the dynamics of emotion that are attributed to football.
0: Yeah, and nothing more so than in a penalty shootout i mean they're so cruel oh mate they're horrendous
1: they're horrendous it still gives me chills actually just thinking back a couple of years ago to that columbia penalty shootout and how utterly nervous i was <laughs> um, but yeah it's horrible
2: there were people around me who were quite who were quite uh, confident about that columbia penalty shootout. i seem to remember that quite a lot of people i was like what are you you know what are you basing this on Where in this recent history because it wasn't just that we went out on penalty to Portugal in 2004, but we went out to them again, two years later. So for you, Taylor, it must've been like, you know, you're dealing with just heartbreak. So it was all, it was all heartbreak because you remember the world cup 2002, but obviously it was Rooney's arrival. And that's really exciting because he was so young and he was immediately, immediately. It wasn't I, what I remember about that tournament is how fast he was. That, that is what I, it was, you speak about, us speak, uh, scoring loads of goals. It was suddenly you had this link between Beckham's passing ability and, and, well, we know about the incredible team. And, and really, to, to 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 go far in international tournaments, you need to have a great defence. And that's what that team was built on. It was a great defence. But suddenly you had this kid who was able to just move it through the channels, box to box. And he was so strong. And he was ours. He was one of ours. Yeah. It was amazing. And because
1: we went to the 2002 World Cup with the a team full of stars, and then... You know, we we were knocked out by that kind of fluky-esque Ronaldo, Ronaldinho girl from the halfway line. And so it felt like we were were genuinely unlucky there. We, you know, we went out to a fluke. And then two years later, we got this competition and we've got this, like, star 18-year-old, or however old he was. Um, And it just, yeah, just felt so great to have, you know, that team that did so well at that World Cup and then, you know, this little diamond at the top of it.
0: And what about... The expansion of the tournament do you feel it dilutes the competition i know like ireland have been to the last two euros and we wouldn't have qualified had they not expanded the tournament and people okay in Euro 2012 we literally added nothing to the tournament we were horrific and we went home after three defeats but in euro 2016 we go to the last 16 so despite not finishing the top two in our group we go through in a playoff we're one of the last 16 teams and i personally think it's good to see smaller nations in these tournaments because invariably one of them will produce a shock somewhere along the line
1: yeah i I agree i like to see smaller teams um, making it into these big competitions. And I like to see more games. You know, part of the pleasure about these big international competitions is that at the beginning, you get a game every day or two or three games every day sometimes. Um, so I, I want to see that. Um, the the thing that I'm not so keen on about this, this format is I don't think the numbers are quite right. You know, we're having this playoff with teams who are finishing third. And part of the entertainment in the group stages is the jeopardy of like, top two through, bottom two out. And we're kind of losing that a bit. Um, it may, you know, it it's likely to turn out some very interesting games, but um, losing that jeopardy is, is not ideal, I think. Um, you know, if we want to expand it, expand it, you know, to 32 or whatever it needs where you you don't need that that playoff. But, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing these the smaller teams and more of them.
0: Well, I think only eight teams are eliminated uh, in the group stages, which... makes it even worse that you're not there we're not we're not one of the top 24 teams in in europe and only eight teams would go home. But, Oli, your thoughts?
2: Obviously, you know, if you're if you're a fan or, or, or if you're from a country who's on sort of the fringes of international competition qualification in general, you obviously want to expand it. You know, and, and as a football fan, it's different to expanding a European competition, say, you know, at club level, um, because that is to, you know, it it, it actually dilutes the competition. It really it stretches the competition over an entire season. But for an international format, we want I mean, to it's not so much about, you know, competitive balance. And I'll give you, for instance, Switzerland, you know, who, who qualified for every single tournament, for, as far as I can see. I, I, you know, I can remember them being in almost every tournament, you know, in recent sort of modern football history. I have never won um, a knockout game since 1938. You know, that's before the Second World War. So it's kind of like define who's competitive. You know, there are, you know, these teams that are sort of considered fodder. There are some teams that are considered established international teams who happen to, you know, you know, to qualify regularly. but yeah, I think when it comes to Ireland, you know, I would have loved to have seen them at the tournament. And specifically the fan base, you know, you, you want all of the countries who, who have, you know, who, who bring and travel and create an, you know, an entire environment and leave, a, a, you know, a lasting impact. In the same way that like the Japanese did at London 2012, you know, just from a sort of an Olympic perspective. But, you know, that's a big part of it. Obviously, when it comes to the third place playoff and, and suddenly, you know, making it suddenly more complex, when you're adding adding teams, that is a problem. That's a serious problem because when you're marketing any tournament to sort of like an eight-year-old or, or, or you know, children, young, younger people who are tracking the tournament, they want to be able to have a wall chart. They want to be able to, you know, track it. I don't know if you did that. I did that as a kid. You have it up. you were working it out as you went through. And, you, you know, and, and, and I think that's a big part of it. And simplicity is part of it. But we know about UEFA and the shambles, uh, you know, when it comes to planning and so on. But I think, um, I think we should definitely expand it. And I would have loved to have seen Ireland at this tournament.
0: And now FIFA are talking about perhaps organising the World Cup on a two-year basis, which just sounds horrendous. So, Ollie, you mentioned about the Dutch team at Euro 96. And you've been researching a little bit. Of, because famously, Dutch teams have failed to deliver at major tournaments. And in preparation for this podcast, you've been taking a look back at why that might be so
2: yes i did it's actually a piece that i'm planning to write as well because i've been fascinated with this sort of period period in dutch football um for for a long time now and and i think what you, you know you sort of open with the with a line about the dutch being a kind of a failure at major competitions and that being sort of woven into the the sort of the tapestry of, of um, Dutch sort of football fandom. They've actually, they've always been present and they've always been a world power. Everybody knows um, about the impact that Johan Cruyff had, um, or, you know, with, with Total Football and the way that he basically revolutionised the game um, uh, and laid the foundations for for the modern game as you see it now. Like that, that's, uh, you know, that's how crucial a moment that was um, in football. When we know about those teams and, uh, and those names from Cruyff to you know, to knee skins and, and so on, so on. In terms of their appearances at the Euros, that's actually where they perform best. That's where they won their only major competition. In In 1988, um, they kind of put those demons to bed because it had it, re- it had really weighed on the sort of the consciousness um, of the Dutch football fan, of the nation, uh, really, because of how uh, successful those Ajax teams had been and how much of an iconic figure uh, Cruyff was. It was interesting to me... That that they still do consider themselves massive failures, and, and and that still is part of their of their culture and and their writing. And and you're know, obviously i dove into you know reams and reams of various articles by prominent sort of Dutch journalists of the time as well back, so sort of stemming back into the seventies. But to keep it to the Euros, Euro Euro eighty eight, uh, was the culmination um, of finally being able to put it all together in one tournament and being able to use this incredible talisman that was Van Basten um, who was kind of dominating at AC Milan um, with uh, Ruud Hullet, who was also a key piece of that team you know that was what was most fascinating to me because I do feel like a lot of that is is kind of misunderstood even by sort of Dutch people in terms of their own success that actually by the time they came to Euro 92 you know they were still the best team in the world this was this was an Ajax team that basically, you know, that stretched sort of from the late 80s to the early 90s. Um, the un, you know, five, six, seven players of which uh, the, the entire Dutch team was sort of built around. Um, and and a lot of those names from Burkamp and a ream of names, Cliver, Edgar Davids and, and van der Sar and and, and the list goes on. Um, but that's what I was speaking about earlier, the importance of England's win over them in ninety six. But it was interesting to me that actually behind the scenes, it was kind of unravelling. Uh, And we met them at the perfect time at Euro 96. And that last group game, uh, when England beat them 4-1, it was actually sort of a breaking point for that team. Um, and I don't know how many uh, you know people might know about the sort of the political goings on. It was very cliquey. That Ajax team, as I've said before, you had you know you had your young guns, and there was this real tension, and and it, and it kind of underlied everything, and it, and they and they kind of fell apart. And that's the story of Dutch football. They they tend to have it's, it's incredibly emotional. When the two years ago uh, I read an article um, that basically written them off uh, after they failed to uh, to qualify for the World Cup. Even when they collapse, they rebuild, and then they go again, and they're always. Ending up, you know, either semi finalists, quarter finalists at the minimum. Uh, And I think that going into this tournament, they're they're outsiders, you know, massive outsiders, but they have, you know, they they always seem to turn up. The
0: Dutch are always a dark horse, and it's incredible that they never seem to fulfill it. Since 1988, there's also some discussions around whether the Ajax model is still um, as useful as it once was. Although Ajax can continue to churn out great players,
1: Taylor, your memories of the Dutch or your opinions of them? Yeah, I love uh, I love watching the Dutch team. I mean, when I grew up, kind of in watching football, in sort of after 2000, the Dutch team was kind of up and coming with all these amazing players like van persie and even going back actually i remember wasn't it van bronckhorst who scored a worldie was it at world cup so yeah they had all these amazing technical players uh, a lot of them played in the premier league so big affiliation there um i don't have too many memories of the dutch at the euros actually i mean i remember obviously van persie's header was it against spain the world cup but yeah not too many memories of them at the euros
0: It just goes to show they always go into a tournament as an outside favourite and then fail to live up to it and have done since 1988. But on that, who then are your team to watch or your outside dark horses for this tournament? Or what players are you looking forward to looking at over the course of the finals?
2: So my dark horse uh, for the competition uh, actually did lose their opening game against a very experienced uh, Italy side who, who in fact won all 10 matches in their qualifiers uh, and one of, the few, one of the few teams to do that and they scored 37 goals but my dark horse remains Turkey uh, for this competition despite losing 3-0 and really I'm sort of signposting them as a team to watch sort of not just for this competition but for the next couple as they're very much sort of coming of age at this point certainly the youngest team um, in Euros 2020 we've already spoken about England being one of the youngest, Turkey are the youngest um, uh, officially. And, uh, and funnily enough, they're actually built around veteran striker Burak Yilmaz, who is the, the talisman, uh, the fulcrum of the Lille team, uh, who won their first Liga uh, title for 10 years. And it's not just Yilmaz who plays for, or who is the cornerstone of that Lille team. They also have uh, Yazichi. Um, and uh, and a couple of others. And, and I, I tip them um, because they also, like Italy, had a, a pretty blistering um, qualification um, period. Uh, they did let in a lot, a lot of goals, but they scored, uh, scored quite a few as well, and they're incredibly fast. Uh, we saw all this um, against Italy, as I say, on the opening day, but they, the very experienced um, Italian side uh, picked them apart in that second half. Um, I do think that it's... As I've said, with Turkey, it's also that they have uh, a number of Premier League stalwarts. Um, Jokuslu, jo- who plays for West Bromwich, and Soyuncu, who plays centre-back for Leicester City and was ever-present during their FA Cup run, which they ended up winning. They have Ozan Kabak uh, and Demiral, who plays for Juventus. So they have a number of players, very young players, admittedly, um, who all play in, um, in Europe's top leagues. And so I, they are my dark horse. Um, after losing the opening game 3-0, I still... I still fancy them to come uh, to, you know, to finish in the knockout stages, given sort of, you know, even if they were to finish third, it's, um, you know, it's likely that they would go through. Um, So they remain um, my dark horse. And I'm certainly, if not tipping them for success in this competition, certainly keep your eyes on them uh, once the next World Cup comes around.
1: Very interesting. Taylor? Yeah, not so much a uh, kind of a new up and coming team to watch, but I'm still slightly fearful of Croatia. I know, obviously, they're an ageing team, maybe, you know, the opposite of Turkey in many ways. Um, but I still think they have that kind of tournament experience and guile that uh, could even get them out of that group. Yeah, despite
0: losing to England in their opening game. It might be an obvious one. From my point of view, I am really keen to see how France perform. They have an amazing team. I think Mbappe, this could be the tournament where he really shines he's already sparkling but this could be the tournament where he absolutely takes flight they have, a, they have an, a frightening squad but you look back to they won france 98 and then followed it up by winning euro 2000 but the following world cup they followed it up with an absolute disaster if you remember i think they lost to senegal they actually didn't win a game or didn't score a goal in that world cup Then you take it to the 2010 World Cup where the nastiness of the hand of Gaul and the playoff with Ireland and there was infighting with France um, players going on strike, I believe led by Thierry Henry. So I'm really interested to see what France do in this tournament. If they back up the World Cup where they're going in now as one of the tournament favourites and live up to that hype. Um, So that's what I'll be looking out for.
1: Yeah, I just I'd second that. Actually, I'm really excited to see that squad. I feel I I felt like in 2018 when they won it that they were perhaps a little bit too young, but they you know they proved me and lots of other people wrong, um, and I think they they're even better. Their squad is even better than it was then. Just a little aside on France, I'm really hoping that Olivier Giroud scores a few goals, because I think he's only a few goals away from becoming France's top ever scorer. So if he can, you know, get two or three or four goals in this competition, he's well on his way. So fingers crossed for him.
0: We've not mentioned Portugal, but they're the defending European champions. I think if Ronaldo scores one goal at the tournament, he's the outright scorer at European Championships. So what a swan song would be for Uh, Ronaldo if they could follow it up by winning again Swan Um,
1: Song he's got a decade left
0: well mate the way he's going he probably could the the shape he's (laughs) in Oli your winners
2: I think it's widely understood and accepted that France are the clear favourites for this tournament and for good reason you know they have a star-studded squad um, and they have such a depth of talent at every position uh, that it really you know makes them undeniable logical favourites but my tip uh, to win the tournament is actually Belgium. Um, now, they are considered to be uh, amongst the best of the rest. You know, in terms of uh, favorites for the tournament, um, but in terms of depth of talent, and in terms of a you know not unlike France of 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 having you know a dearth of of of, of stars. From across Europe's top leagues. I think Belgium are one of the few international teams who, on paper, could go toe to toe with France. You know, whether that be Manchester City's midfield maestro, Kevin de Bruyne, whom we know all about in England, just taken Man City to their Premier League title, Romelu Lukaku, who's been bagging goals over in Italy and bringing home. Uh, Inter Milan's first uh, domestic title for for quite some time, um, but that list of that list of names goes on and on. Um, Eden Hazard, obviously, uh, and his brother Thorgan uh, Jan Vertonghen, Thibaut Courtois, Toby Alderweireld, a number of players who we're very familiar with. The thing about Belgium is their defence is is getting up in age. I think they're widely considered to be the best generation of Belgian players since um, nineteen ninety, really and actually they're considered to have underwhelmed and underperformed thus far, certainly not hit the peaks of their potential, this might be the last go-around or the last chance for major international honours for this iteration of the Belgian team. And I think that confluence of of all those factors means that, and I believe that if, if France and Belgium are both to finish first in their respective groups, then they'll be on a collision course um, destined to meet uh, in the semi-finals. And I think that will be the game. If it transpires that those two two teams make it, which I think they will, um, I think that'll be the game that decides the tournament. And for me, I'm going with Belgium. That's my tip.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm persuaded by Oli's summary of Belgium. So I'm going Belgium or France. If I had to pick between the two, I think France.
0: Okay, and just for fun, I'm going to say the tournament winners will be England. Don't do that. So, ma'am, if you're listening, ma'am, around about mid July, I'll be moving home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Gentlemen, I hope you enjoy the tournament. Thank you for joining us on the podcast again. Ollie, great to have you back.
2: Thank you, James.
0: And you, Taylor. Thanks, James. Thanks, gents. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pokemon Gold podcast. Pick up your copy of Issue 6 of Ireland's only football magazine in Easton's and Tuttle's in Ireland or online by visiting our website. Drop us a rating or review and get in contact via social media. Join us next time on the Pogma Gold podcast.